Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I cannot keep count of all the books that have offended me, infuriated me, disgusted me, but I would never argue that they not be published. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The culture of social censure today has at its center a kind of puritanism that expects us to be free of all flaws, like angels. And angels do not need free speech. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is a Nigerian writer whose books like Purple Hibiscus and Americana have won wide acclaim. She is an advocate for feminism, for LGBT rights in Africa, and a target of what she and many others call cancel culture. It is a virtual vigilante action whose aim is not just to silence the person who has spoken, but to create a vengeful atmosphere that deters others from speaking. Adichie is the first speaker in this year's BBC Reef Lectures. Every year, the lectures delve into an issue of current debate, but this year's are a little different. Instead of one speaker, there are four, each speaking on the theme of freedom. The lectures are inspired by a speech from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. In 1941, Roosevelt used his State of the Union address to support American involvement in the Second World War. He also proposed four essential freedoms which all humans deserve. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. In the first lecture, Adichie analyzes the state of freedom of speech and argues that the greatest risk to freedom of expression today is not legal or political, but social. From London, here's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. It's a bit disturbing to have people be forced to clap for me. <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> when I was growing up in the 1980s on the campus of the University of Nigeria in Osaka, I was a very curious child, keen to hear every story, especially those that were no business of mine. And so as a result, I sharpened very early on in life the skill of eavesdropping, a pastime at which I am still quite adept. (laughs) 
I noticed that each time my parents' friends visited, they would sit in the living room talking loudly, except for when they criticized the military government. Then they spoke in whispers. That whispering, apart from testing my eavesdropping capabilities, was striking. Why speak in such hushed tones when in the privacy of our living room, drinking brandy, no less? Well, because they were so attuned to a punitive authoritarian government that they instinctively lowered their voices, saying words they dared not say in public. We would not expect this whispering in a democracy. Freedom of expression is, after all, a bedrock of open societies. But there are many people in Western democracies today who will not speak loudly about issues they care about because they are afraid of what I will call social censure. Vicious retaliation, not from the government, but from other citizens. An American student once accosted me at a book reading. Why, she asked angrily, had I said something in an interview? I told her that what I had said was the truth, and she agreed that it was, and then asked, but why should we say it even if it's true? At first, I was astonished at the absurdity of the question. Then I realized what she meant. It didn't matter what I actually believed. I should not have said it because it did not align with my political tribe. I had desecrated the prevailing orthodoxy. It was like being accused of blasphemy in a religion that is not yours. That young woman's question, why should we say it even if it's true, illustrates what the writer Ayad Akhtar has called a moral stridency, a fierce, perhaps even punitive adherence to the collectively sanctioned attitudes and behaviors of this era. To that, I would add that this moral stridency is in fact always punitive. We now live in broad, settled ideological tribes. We no longer need to have real discussions because our positions are already assumed based on our tribal affiliation. Our tribes demand from us a devotion to orthodoxy, and they abide not reason, but faith. Many young people are growing up in this cauldron, afraid to ask questions for fear of asking the wrong questions. And so they practice an exquisite kind of self-censorship, even if they believe something to be true or important, they do not say so because they should not say so. One cannot help but wonder, in this epidemic of self-censorship, what are we losing and what have we lost? We're all familiar with stories of people who have said or written something and then faced a terrible online backlash. There's a difference between valid criticism, which should be part of free expression, and this kind of backlash. Ugly personal insults, putting addresses of homes and children's schools online, 
trying to make people lose their jobs. To anyone who thinks, well, some people who have said terrible things deserve it, no, nobody deserves it. It is unconscionable barbarism. It is a virtual vigilante action whose aim is not just to silence the person who has spoken, but to create a vengeful atmosphere that deters others from speaking. There is something honest about an authoritarianism that recognizes itself to be what it is. Such a system is easier to challenge because the battle lines are clear. But this new social censure demands consensus while being willfully blind to its own tyranny. I think it portends the death of curiosity, the death of learning, and the death of creativity. No human endeavor requires freedom as much as creativity does. To create, one needs a kind of formless roving of the mind to go nowhere and anywhere and everywhere. It is from that swirl that art emerges. The German writer Gunther Grass once reflected on his writing process with these words. The barriers fell, language surged forward, memory, imagination, the pleasure of invention. As a writer, I recognize this intimately. As a reader, I have often felt the magic of literature, that sudden internal shiver while reading a novel, that glorious shock of mutuality, a sense of wonder that a stranger's words could make me feel less alone in the world. Literature shows us who we are, takes us into history, tells us not just what happened, but how it felt, and teaches us, as an American professor once put it, about things that are not googleable. Books shape our understanding of the world. We speak of Dickensian London. We look to great African writers like Edu and Ngugi to understand the continent. And we read Balzac for the subtleties of post-Napoleonic France. Literature deeply matters. And I believe literature is in peril because of social censure. If nothing changes, the next generation will read us and wonder, how did they manage to stop being human? How were they so lacking in contradiction and complexity? How did they banish all their shadows? On a calm morning in New York this August, Salman Rushdie was attacked while just about to speak, ironically, on the freedom of speech. Imagine the brutal, barbaric intimacy of a stranger standing inches from you and forcefully plunging a knife into your face and your neck multiple times because you wrote a book. I decided to reread Rushdie's books, not only as an act of defiant support, but as a ritualized reminder that physical violence in response to literature can never, ever be justified. 
Rushdie was attacked because in 1989, after his novel, The Satanic Verses, was published, the Iranian regime declared it offensive and condemned not just Rushdie, but all his publishers to death. Horrors, of course, then followed. His Italian translator was stabbed, his Norwegian publisher was shot, and his Japanese translator, Hitoshi Igarashi, was murdered in Tokyo. Here is a question I've been thinking about. Would Rushdie's novel be published today? Probably not. Would it even be written? Possibly not. There are writers like Rushdie who want to write novels about sensitive subjects, but are held back by the specter of social censure. Publishers are wary of committing secular blasphemy. Literature is increasingly viewed through ideological rather than artistic lenses. Nothing demonstrates this better than the recent phenomenon of sensitivity readers in the world of publishing, people whose job it is to cleanse unpublished manuscripts of potentially offensive words. This, in my mind, negates the very idea of literature. We cannot tell stories that are only light when life itself is light and darkness. Literature is about how we are great and flawed. It is about what H.G. Wells has called the jolly coarseness of life. To that, I would add that just coarseness alone will do. It need not be jolly. While I insist that violence is never an acceptable response to speech, I do not deny the power of words to wound. Words can break the human spirit. Some of the deepest pain I have experienced in my life have come from words that somebody said or wrote. And some of the most beautiful gifts I have received have also been words. It is precisely because of this power of words that freedom of speech matters. Freedom of speech. Even the expression itself has sadly taken on a partisan tribal tint. It is often framed, and I will put it crudely, as say whatever you want versus consider the feelings of others. This, though, is too stark a dichotomy. I cannot keep count of all the books that have offended me, infuriated me, disgusted me, but I would never argue that they not be published. When I read something scientifically false, such as that drinking urine cures cancer, or something gratuitously hurtful to human dignity, such as that gay people should be imprisoned for being gay, I desperately long to banish such ideas from the world. Yet I resist advocating censorship. I take this position as much for reasons of principle as for practicality. I believe deeply in the principle of free expression, and I believe this particularly because I am a writer and a reader, and because literature is my great love, 
and because I have been formed and inspired and consoled by books. Had any of those books been censored, I would perhaps today be lost. My practical reason, we could also call it my selfish reason, is that I fear the weapon I advocate to be used against someone else might one day be used against me. What today is considered benign could very well become offensive tomorrow because the suppression of speech is not so much about the speech itself as it is the person who censors. American high school boards are today engaged in a frenzy of book banning, and the process seems arbitrary. Books that have been used in school curriculums for years with no complaints have suddenly been banned in some states. And I understand that one of my novels is in this august group. I confess that there are some books I would fantasize about banning. Books that deny the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide, for example, because I detest the denial of history. But what if someone else's fantasy was to ban a book about the Dei Yassin massacre of Palestinians by Zionists in 1948? Or a book about the Iwo coal miners massacred in Nigeria by the British colonial government in 1949? Above principle and pragmatism, however, is the reality that censorship very often does not achieve its objective. My first instinct on learning that a book has been banned is to seek it out and read it. And so I would say, do not ban them, answer them. In this age of mounting disinformation all over the world, when it is easy to dress up a lie so nicely that it starts to take on the glow of truth, the solution is not to hide the lie, but to expose it and scrub from it its false glow. When we censor the purveyors of bad ideas, we risk making them martyrs, and the battle with a martyr can never be won. I read newspapers from both sides of the political spectrum. I am, by the way, still puzzled that newspapers, ostensible bastions of objectivity, are politically differentiated. And I often say, when I am feeling a little sanctimonious, that I am interested in the ideas of people who disagree with me because I believe that it is good to hear different sides of an issue. But the truth is that I am interested in their ideas because I want to understand them properly and therefore be better able to demolish them. I believe that the answer to bad speech is more speech. And I recognize how simplistic, even flippant, that can sound. This is not to suggest that one should be allowed to say absolutely anything at any time, which to me is a juvenile position for being fantastical and detached from reality. Free speech absolutism would be appropriate only for a theoretical world inhabited by animated ideas rather than humans. Some speech restrictions are necessary in a civilized world. 
After the Second World War, when countries gathered to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, most agreed that incitement to violence should be punished. But the Soviet bloc wanted to add incitement to hatred, citing the Nazis as an example, which on the surface was reasonable. But their opponents suspected rightly that incitement to hatred would end up being interpreted so widely as to include any criticism of the government. This raises the question, who decides just how narrow and how clear restrictions should be? The 19th century English philosopher, John Stuart Mill, wrote that all silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. And with all due respect to the Pope, nobody's infallible. So who decides what should be silenced? Mahatma Gandhi, after he was arrested for sedition, wrote, Affection cannot be manufactured or regulated by law. If one has no affection for a person or system, one should be free to give the fullest expression to his disaffection, so long as he does not contemplate, promote, or incite to violence. Most people would agree. But what about speech that does not directly incite violence, but has nevertheless led to deaths by suicide, as has happened with people so harangued on social media, so insulted and abused that they take their own lives? I, by the way, use the word violence, assuming that its meaning is self-evident. But is it really? For what is to be said of the idea prevalent today that speech does not merely incite violence, the kind of physical act as suffered by Salman Rushdie, but that speech itself is violence? The expression the answer to bad speech is more speech, in its beguiling simplicity, also fails to consider a central motif, which is power. Who has access? Who is in a position to answer bad speech with more speech? In arguing for the freedom of speech, one must consider all the limitations placed by unequal power relations, such as a mainstream press owned by fewer and fewer wealthy people, which naturally excludes multiple voices. Even the definition of speech can be limiting, such as when the United States Supreme Court decided, in the case of Citizens United, that money is speech. All those not wealthy cannot then answer back, as it were. Most of all, the social media companies with their mystical algorithms and their lack of transparency exert enormous control on who can speak and who cannot by suspending and censoring their users, something that has been called moderation without representation. Yes, these companies are private, but considering the outsized influence they have in modern society, they really should be treated more like a public utility. There are those who think that because of these sorts of power limitations, we should robustly censor speech in order to create tolerance. 
a well-intentioned idea, no doubt. But as the Danish lawyer Jacob Mchangama has argued, to impose silence and call it tolerance does not make it so. Real tolerance requires understanding. Understanding comes from listening. Listening presupposes speech. For all the nobility in the idea of censorship for the sake of tolerance, it is also a kind of capitulation and acceptance that the wounded cannot fight back. When an anti-black poster was once displayed on the campus of Arizona State University, the university chose not to expel the perpetrators. Instead, a forum was organized, the poster discussed, and an overwhelming majority of students expressed their disapproval. One of the black students who organized this said, when you get a chance to swing at racism, and you do, you feel more confident about doing it the next time. A troubling assumption underlying the idea of censorship for the sake of tolerance is that good people do not need free speech as they cannot possibly want to say anything hurtful to anyone. Free speech is therefore for the bad people who want it as a cover to say bad things. The culture of social censure today has at its center a kind of puritanism that expects us to be free of all flaws, like angels. And angels do not need free speech. Of course we all need free speech. Free speech is indeed a tool of the powerful, but it is also, crucially, the language of the powerless. The courageous protests by Iranian women, the NSARS protest in Nigeria where young people rallied against police brutality, the Arab Spring, all wielded speech. Dissent is impossible without the freedom of speech. The biggest threat to speech today is not legal or political, but social. This is not a new idea, even if its present manifestation is modern. That famed chronicler of American life, Alexis de Tocqueville, believed that the greatest dangers to liberty were not legal or political, but social. And when John Stuart Mill warned against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling, it reads as though he foresaw the threat that orthodoxy poses today. The solution to this threat can only be collective action. Social censure creates not just a climate of fear, but also a reluctance to acknowledge this fear. It is only human to fear a mob, but I would fear less if I knew my neighbor would not stay silent were I to be pilloried. We fear the mob, but the mob is us. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. From London, this is the first of this year's BBC Reef Lectures with Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I'm Nala Ayed. 
When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name's Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. This year's Wreath Lectures focus on the Four Freedoms, a concept described by U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt in 1941. He argued there are four essential freedoms that all people are owed. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. In this episode, Adichie says that the greatest risks to free speech today are not political or legal, but social. Here's the second part of her lecture, followed by a Q&A hosted by the BBC's Anita Anand. I want to make a case today for moral courage for each of us to stand for freedom of speech, to refuse to participate in unjustified censorship, and to make much wider the boundaries of what can be said. We must start again to assume good faith. In public discourse today, the assumption of good faith is dead, and speech is by default interpreted in the most uncharitable way. Yes, some people are not of good faith, which I suppose is what that modern word troll means. But we cannot, because some people do not act in good faith, then decide that the principle of good faith itself is dead. It is instructive to be reminded of American President James Madison's words, some degree of abuse is inseparable from the proper use of everything. We must start again to make our case, respectfully and factually. We must agree that neither sanctimonious condescension on the left nor mean-spirited hectoring on the right qualify as political arguments. We must insist not only on truth, but also nuance. An argument for any social justice movement, for example, is stronger and more confident when it is nuanced because it does not feel the need to simplify in order to convince. We must hear every side, and not only the loudest side. While social media has reshaped the traditional power dynamic by giving some access to the powerless, it has also made it easy to mistake the loudest voices for the truest. We must protect the values of disagreement and agree that there is value in disagreement. And we must support the principle of free expression when it does not appeal to our own agenda, difficult as that may be. And I find it particularly so. We must wean ourselves of the addiction to comfort. When I first left Nigeria to attend university in the US, I quickly realized that in public conversations about America's difficult problems, like income inequality and race, 
The goal was not truth. The goal was to keep everyone comfortable. And so people pretended not to see what they saw. Things were left unsaid, questions unasked, and ignorance festered. This unwillingness to accept the discomfort that honesty can bring is in its own way a suppression of speech. Some Americans argue, for example, that students today should not be taught about the racist Jim Crow laws of the 1950s because it will make them uncomfortable. And so they prefer the disservice to young people of making them ignorant of their own history. We must stop assuming that everyone knows or should know everything. I was once struck by how quickly an American journalist was fired from her job for saying something racist. Little was made public about exactly what it was she had said. And this not only gave a certain unearned power to her words, but also darkly suggested that perhaps they contained an element of truth. The public was also cheated of its right to hear and perhaps potentially learn. What was said? Why was saying it wrong? What should have been said instead? We must demand that people behave on social media only as they would in real life. And we must also demand reasonable social media reforms, such as the removal of anonymity, or linking advertising only to accounts with real names, which would provide an incentive to promote voices of actual people and not amoral bots. What if each of us, but particularly those of us with voices, gatekeepers, opinion shapers, political and cultural leaders, editors, social media influencers, across the political spectrum, were to agree on these ideas as broad rules to follow. A coalition of the reasonable would automatically moderate extreme speech. Is it naive? Perhaps. But a considered embrace of naivety can be the beginning of change. The internet was, after all, designed to create a utopia of human connection a naive idea if ever there was one. But it still brought about the most significant change in how human beings communicate. Sometimes it takes a crisis for a naive idea to become realistic. President Roosevelt's New Deal itself was based on ideas that went against the prevailing consensus of the time and were generally considered naive and impossible. But when crisis came in the form of the Great Depression, it suddenly became possible. Social censure is our crisis today. George Orwell wrote that if large numbers of people are interested in freedom of speech, there will be freedom of speech, even if the law forbids it. And to that I would add, we can protect our future. We just need moral courage. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to open this up to the floor now. The first one here. My name's Afwa Hirsch. 
Thank you, Chimamanda, for your incredibly erudite lecture. In this era of followers and likes, self-censorship is a huge part of the challenge that we face. And I'm curious how you protect yourself from internalizing what you can anticipate the response to your freedom of creativity and speech is in your work and how you find the courage to follow the ideas that you have regardless of the potential consequences for those who follow you and those who want and expect you to maintain a certain line? When I'm writing fiction, I do not think about audience. And it's so important to me because there's something when my fiction is going well, which doesn't happen as often as I would like, it's magical. I feel transported and suspended and it's it's just the most joyous thing for me, which is why fiction is the love of my life. I'm thinking about character and emotion and human motivation and all of those things. And when I teach fiction to young people, I tell them that as well, which is do not think about anybody because you're going to censor yourself and your story is then going to be false. I think in particular fiction, literature, storytelling, if we're going to participate in it, I think that we have a huge responsibility to the truth. And so if you're not willing to kind of live up to that responsibility to the truth, then you really have no business writing fiction. But, but at the same time, I don't want to pretend as though I don't know that books are now read differently. So it's no longer just about my uncle reading a sex scene and thinking, how does she know that? But it's also, and I do have uncles who think that, and I'm 45 years old. Um, <laughs> But it's also that sometimes people then read a character that you've written and they attribute a character's um, ideas to you, the writer. And, you know, I still do not think that that's a reason not to, not to write. When I am writing nonfiction, which is an entirely different thing for me, I'm very much aware of what I want to achieve with nonfiction. I'm, I'm aware of who I imagine my audience is because often when I write pieces that are nonfiction, I'm usually trying to persuade someone. For example, I wrote something about feminism. And when I was writing it, I was very clear that I was trying to get a few more people to start to recognize the full humanity of women. And to do that meant that I thought about my audience. But I did not think about the people who would hate it. I thought about the people who I might convince. And when, when you talk about likes, the age of clicks and likes, it helps to stay away from social media. I think especially when, when one is immersed in the creative process, to stay away. It's, it's really important, stay away. Maybe when you're done with the novel, then go back. Let's take another question. Yeah, I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and comedian. So to sort of put the other side of it, which I think we're all aware of as writers and whatever, on social media, there are a lot of people who, seeing it as they do as some kind of prime motivator of social justice, which it can be, they, I think, would say that what's actually happening when someone says something and are then are piled on, that that is consequences. That there is some kind of freedom of play of their speech and the actions, the pushback against them, as if what we're looking at here is a kind of unbridled democracy and people just answering back. What I think that ignores is that what we're talking about is a performative space. It's a performative space, and people behave dysfunctionally mm -hmm. in a performative space. And what you get with that notion that it's just people answering is a complete ignoring of the madness of crowds, mm -hmm. of tribal identity, the need to perform, and also of the way the algorithm works, mm -hmm. which is to attract people to watch hatred and to watch shaming. 
So I wondered what you thought about that notion of it's just consequences and that when people are attacked in the way they are, they should have been more careful, they should have expected it, and what that does in the end to how freedom of speech might work. Because the notion of that in your head, that that is waiting for you, is always, I think, going to hold you back. Not if you refuse. I mean, the one thing I want to say, and in some ways you allude to that already, is that social media is not real life. But it, it nevertheless has consequences for people in real life. So it's a really strange thing, and I think so new for us as, as a human civilization. And, and as the, the question of consequences, I mean, the one thing I think about is often there isn't a, a sense of proportion. I've always found that really shocking. You know, you read about someone who's been piled on, and then you go find out what they said, and you think, really? I guess for me, the, the thing is, what's the point? Because if we are saying that it's about consequences, then I think we need to think in a larger sense about what, what kind of society we're creating. So if we're going to answer bad speech with this sort of piling on, that has real consequences of people. What society do we want to live in, I think, is the question. I don't want to live in, in a society where even if someone has said something I really dislike, that person's child suddenly is in danger. I don't want to live in that kind of world. And I think that, you know, we as, as a human civilization, we have put people on the moon and people sort of want to go and have picnics in outer space and we have transplanted hearts. Surely we can find an alternative way to frame this idea of consequences. Another question. Oh, a forest of hands going up. Uh, my name's Talia Randall. Um, I'm a writer and podcaster. My question is about how we practice free speech in daily life. We've talked a lot about how we're doing it badly on social media, but I work a lot with young people in an extracurricular way, so normally doing stuff around sensitive subjects like abuse or racism, big things. And in the past couple of years, I've noticed that that work is getting a little bit harder, mm. partly because I think of young people seeing stuff online and that entering the space, but also just because of the other pressures of school and life and society and everything. Mm. It's become less of a priority. So I guess I'm wondering how you think we should practice it mm. on a more micro, daily way. Mm. How do you do it in the classroom, mm. for instance? I teach writing workshop in Nigeria. So the first thing I do is I tell them, I mean, that expression, safe space, has been you know, made fun of and, and you know, with good reason, but I do tell them that it's a safe space. But, I, but I, I define for them what I mean, which is that everybody in this room gets to have an equal voice. You can disagree, but you do not shut them down. And the second thing I, I do is I have everyone go around and talk about something really stupid that they have done or something they're really ashamed of. And often I start with myself. And I find that it works, because what it does is that it reminds us, you know, we're all sort of, you know, muddling along and trying to get it right, and we don't know everything, and I, so I find that it generally works. Sometimes there are people who are very upset with me. I, one of the years that I was teaching the workshop, this young man had written a story that <laughs> portrayed women kind of like Philip Roth, you know, really sort of simplified and misogynistic. And so he was reading the story, and then a young woman sort of started expressing her disapproval in rather loud terms. And I, made, I stopped her. And she was upset because, again, she's in my tribe. I, I actually dislike that story. But I felt that that was not the way 
to express that dislike. Because what would happen to that young man is that he would sort of go off in a huff and say, well, they didn't even let me read my story because they know that it's true and that sort of nonsense. And so I thought, no, let him talk. Let him talk. And then afterwards, let's very calmly demolish the story. (laughs) Question here. Yes. Hello, my name is Arsenia Sokolov. I'm half Russian, half Ukrainian. And first of all, I want to say thank you for this discussion. It's amazing that it can happen here. And I really appreciate it. So most of my life, I lived in Russia where such luxury as freedom of speech can lead to your imprisonment, torture, and all these horrible things. And um, this self-censorship in Russia was built for generations, for centuries and decades, and came to that level that people are not just scared to speak freely, but they're scared to think freely. Do you think the need of freedom can overweight and overcome fear? Yes. So to answer your question quite simply, yes. Yes, I have a lot of faith in, in the resilience of the human spirit. I think that there are many people in Russia who continue to defy this stifling, not just of speaking, but of thinking. And they do that by thinking. And and at the same time, of course, I recognize that it's not easy. And so I think that a lot of my talk was focused, obviously, on what's happening in, really, in the U.S., because often a lot of these um, ridiculous things originate in America. And then because Western Europe doesn't have enough confidence not to take on issues that really do not concern them. They sort of take it on. And then before you know it, everybody in Western Europe and the U.S. are sort of talking about the same things. So in some ways, my thing is focused on that because I think obviously there are other, and I would say bigger, issues of speech in, in other parts of the world, in Russia, in, um, in Saudi Arabia, in, um, in Nigeria. Thank you for being here. We have got time for one last question, and the hands shoot up now. Mm. Hello. Hello. My name's Amaka Okafor. I'm an actor. I um, would like a little bit of practical advice. I am a sensitive person, and I am okay with that now, because it makes me a good mum, and it makes me good at my job. I have been on the receiving end of public shaming online. I have a love-hate relationship with Instagram. Sometimes I think it's beautiful. Sometimes I find it unsafe. And I'm trying to use it for work. I have a couple of things coming out next year where I feel like, because of the kind of characters I'm portraying, I might be at the receiving end of dangerous chat. I already know there are some things that replenish me. The countryside is one of them. I was just wondering if when you see things online that are aimed at you, that hurt you, are there a couple of things that you do or that you tell yourself? I think it's so lovely that you said um, that you recognize things that replenish you. I think it's so important. It's so important. Well, I think the first thing to say is (laughs) that I embrace a sparkling cowardice which is to say that I do not see those things on social media because I don't look. <laughs> and so I am on Instagram, but actually, I, you know, maybe this is where I can give out my secret. So I send pictures to my assistant. She decides what goes on. Sometimes I send out the captions. and she, So I don't even know my Instagram password. <laughs> so if you have a dear friend who you trust, someone you love, maybe they could do that for you. You know, I really, really think 
that there's only so much of that kind of thing that a human being can take. I just, I do not believe in this idea that we should somehow thicken our skins and become crocodiles and take it on. No, you know, we need, we need and, and you're a creative person, you need to protect your creativity and your spirit and your art. And the way to do that, I think, is to, is to use social media only when you have to. Do not ever, this is advice I got from my dear friend Dave Eggers many, many years ago. He said, you're really getting very big, aren't you? Do not ever search for yourself online. <laughs> I never have, and I never will. There's no point. A big thank you to our audience here in London. A very special thank you, though, to our first wreath lecturer of 2022, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. <laughs> You are listening to Ideas and to the annual Wreath Lectures from the BBC, featuring Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. The next lecture is from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, on the state of freedom of worship. This lecture is supposed to be about freedom of worship. But the vocabulary of human rights discussions more often refers to freedom of religion and belief as one of the fundamental pillars of social liberty. Surely, the real priority for an enlightened society is the freedom to follow our consciences. Why bring in worship? Modern societies have settled for a kind of lukewarm tolerance, a recognition that within reasonable limits of public order, people may conduct whatever rituals they please because none of this should impinge on the way they make significant decisions or order their civic and personal lives. But this gives the unmistakable impression that religious practice is essentially a sort of leisure activity. Probably harmless, but definitely marginal to the main business of society. It's the kind of repressive tolerance that some radical social theorists of the 60s identified, a tolerance that undermines what it purports to allow. And this is where I want to argue that a lot more is involved. But arguing for this perspective relates directly, and perhaps unexpectedly, to how far a self-styled liberal society remains capable of asking itself serious critical questions. Now, people who follow a traditional religious discipline understand the whole of their human life to be tied up with the business of attuning oneself to and communicating the nature of the sacred. A Jew keeping the Sabbath is announcing that the rhythm of their week is shaped by a story which establishes how God relates to the world. Renouncing any kind of active business for one day of the week keeps us aware that we do not always have to maximize the use of time for our own safety, advantage, or profit. Quite the contrary. We are obliged to remember, for 24 hours or so, our unconditional dependence, a dependence on a grace that we have not earned or created for ourselves. The same kind of perspective will be at work in how a Muslim understands keeping Ramadan. The self-restraint and generous almsgiving expected during Ramadan display a crucial conviction about human life and the sacred environment in which it takes place. 
So the practices involved are more than simply occasional acts of decorous or picturesque religious ceremony. In these cases, they alter the Jewish or Muslim individual's engagement with society. And this might prompt society at large to try and restrict their practices when they become inconvenient. Broadening the picture a bit, most of us will remember the case of a Coptic Christian from Egypt working for an airline. Uniform rules prohibited her wearing a cross around her neck. She argued that for her tradition, the wearing of a cross was not an optional bit of decoration, but a statement of faithfulness on the part of a disadvantaged and harassed minority. Well, try thinking of worship in this sort of context. Not just as an occasional public ceremony, but as the appropriate real-world response to and expression of commitment to a certain kind of supposed truth. A truth which determines the options we have for relating to one another as persons in society. If this makes sense, then freedom of worship is an intrinsic aspect of the freedom to manifest belief and Manifesting belief, it seems, is not just about being able to say what you think in abstract terms. It's not even about your sacred rituals being more or less tolerated. It's about the freedom to conduct yourself in a certain way. Understanding your pattern of life as communicating something more than just your individual wants or feelings, because it's answerable to something more than just your own judgment or just the prevailing social consensus. And it may indeed be challenging for that consensus or majority opinion, as it is challenging for your own individual comfort or preference. Now, this is where things can become really complicated. That's Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, from the next BBC Reith Lecture. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. This series was adapted for ideas by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Special thanks to Laura Lawrence and the BBC World Service. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.